Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 26, 2016, and this is episode 1878 of the Survival Podcast. Since it's Monday, we're doing a listener feedback show. I've got a big, diverse a group of things up to talk about for you guys today that all came in from emails from you guys. Uh, somebody says, well, what if teachers went on strike and no one cared? And this is in regard to uh, the teachers in Chicago talking about going on strike. And we'll talk about some of the mental disconnect with reality uh, in that one. Uh, last week, we had a guy asked about growing grapevines over a dog run. And I've got a lot of people saying grapes are poisonous to dogs. I'm going to give you uh, my view uh, after having researched that. And um, you still may want to err to the side of caution, but I have uh, I have my doubts. It's actually the grapes in of themselves, and I'll tell you why. And I got a person saying, "Are there any jobs that are safe from automation?" The answer is no, but it's probably not why you think. Um, parent asking how to deal with ADD without drugs. I'm going to give you my answer, but I may kick that to uh, Doc Bones for a follow up on expert counsel shows. I got a walking to freedom story that's pretty cool. Uh, for people who decided they get out of Colorado and to move somewhere a little bit more in step with their version of freedom. I have a question on beginning training with a young child in gun use and safety. Uh, I have a question on proper grill care and maintenance. Starting chestnuts from seed. How we manage our feed rate for ducks. So I say I feed a quarter pound per duck per day. How do we actually do that? Um, a male officer's perspective on female officers and all of this stuff with the shooting in Tulsa. And I'm going to tell you right now, don't get pissed at me. I'm just reading you what somebody sent me. I don't even have a big opinion on it because the answer to the whole is it true is I don't know. It's not what I've observed yet, but I've only observed limited interaction with female officers. And I will have my final question today will be grilling the perfect squirrel. Yes, really. Kind of fits in with the question on grills. And uh, it should be a good show. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year 1878, because the episode is 1878. Uh, I have Tolstoy tells it all to you. It's a very interesting read on that one. And let's hang Mr. Edison, which is the one I'm going to read. And the Man of Steel is born. By the way, since I'm not going to read that one, I'll tell you that would be Joseph Stalin. Stalin was a nickname that meant steel, man of steel. Uh, in other news, a saucer-like UFO is seen moving through the sky at fantastic speeds. Flying saucers are born. A photo of a UFO will be taken five years from now. Black Bart is shot while robbing his last stagecoach. He usually recites poetry during his robberies. Charles Black Bart Bowles gets six years and the Great Mill Explosion kills 23 in Minneapolis. A spark ignites flower dust in the air. Washburn A. Mill will be rebuilt and a better ventilation and safety features, which is probably a good idea. All right, let's hang Mr. Edison, guys. Some folks are a little miffed at Mr. Edison. In the age of invention, life is changing faster than people can absorb. Edison's phonograph is a good example. Mr. Edison is exploring the uses of his recorder. Ever since his electric vote counter went down the drain, he has decided never to invent anything he can't make money at. But he has invented the phonograph without considering its possible uses or impact on society. After thinking about it, he promotes it. The phonograph is a recorder. It's a way to preserve the last words from the dying so that dead relatives can live again. He suggests that the auto recordings could be stored in the gravesite or at some, or at home to be brought out on Sunday to remember. This becomes a serious discussion in Scientific American, but the general public is unhappy with rumors surrounding Mr. Edison. 
He's apparently discovered some mysterious force that he carries about on his person. His new phonograph can record the slightest sound or, or voice. He can replay to confuse the public at his will. In his rumors, he is working on an electric light bulb now. True, Mr. Edison is inventing too many things. When will it stop? My take by Alex Strug. You'll notice Edison wanted his device used on Sunday, the time when the general public was devoted to religious ritual and reflection. In modern times, with religion taking a backseat, science has been trying to fill the void. I'm okay visiting the doctor rather than waiting for a cure for God, but looking at for a God particle using a large hadron collider seems a little weird. The research is great, but calling the Higgs boson a guard particle is a little too patronizing. I feel like Medicine Wagon just rolled into town with a new cure for rheumatism. Religious people must recognize religious argument when they hear it. Scientists usually don't. So when will they, when they try to make a religious argument, like I saw the director from Femi Labs try to do in their hunt for the God particle, their arguments sound trite, clumsy, and insincere. The phonograph was as a scientific life-after-death machine for Edison. It was a path to immortality for the masses. We want our Twitter accounts to remain responsive even after we drop out of life. PBS science show Nova interviewed android Philip K. Dick, FYI, of Blade Runner, died in 1982. Artificial intelligence is a science to life after death. The movie Her is about an AI that can react to things like a live girl. It's iPhone Siri on steroids. I'm fine with exploring these possibilities, but I would like science to be more honest about it. I don't think they can, though. They are like cats trying to imitate dogs. They might be able to fool other cats, but dogs smell something funny. Um, you know, kind of my take on the way people reacted to Edison is people always fear things that are new, and they do one of two things. They either violently resist or oppose them, or they ignore them and say that it's not really a big deal. And I think right now... Our time in history is a lot like this time in history with all these new things coming. And most people, instead of opposing them, are ignoring them and trying to sweep them under the rug. And I'll save comments on that for a question on automation in a bit. But I think we have a lot of that going on today. My, uh, my other observation here, though, is um, the phonograph never became what Edison envisioned it. It became a way for people mostly to listen to music. And... Um, I think it maybe would have had potential for things like, you know, the first audio books. And I'm sure there were some, but radio kind of took that role because radio started putting out all these amazing shows when radio comes along a little bit later here in the future. And until the dawning of t television, radio was the entertainment device and then became television. And radio took kind of a backseat to TV after a time. And people never really used these technologies to record who and what they are. And because of that, we, I think we've lost a lot of opportunity to actually have the voice of our loved ones to listen to after they're gone and to learn from them and to know what they really thought. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me. I was thinking about this today. Religiously, I'm a deist, right? And sometimes people say, well, this founding father was a deist. And other people say, no, he went to a, you know, a, a Methodist church, right? Or uh, he was a, a Lutheran or, or whatever because he went to Lutheran church. Well, what I think about is like, okay, if I died and somebody was trying to use my words to make a case and they wanted to make a case from a standpoint of, well, Jack was a Christian, they could say, well, Jack was born a Catholic. He was deeply involved with the Methodist church and just leave out the part, well, not for the last, you know, half or more of his life. And... That would be difficult to do now because I'm on record with what I believe. And I think that maybe that's something we should all want to do is be on record with what we believe so that our words and actions in the future, when we can't speak for ourselves, can't be twisted. 
That's one way I think about it. The other way I think about it is I think it is a, a tremendous time to be alive and preserving what people think and feel and do. And we're probably not using the technology yet uh, to, to a way to do that. I think a lot of people have thought of leaving messages for their grandchildren or great-grandchildren will never be born. Now I'm taking a run at that with GenForward.com, which is a complete rebuild after a fiasco with our coder. Um, but the truth is we I know people right now who are who have passed and occasionally I go to their Facebook page and I look through their pictures and I find videos of them and things like that and this has never happened before in history we've never been able to allow those who we care about to continue to speak to us after they're gone the way that we can today maybe we had some letters or books or photographs or maybe a little bit of 8 millimeter film but today each one of us is slowly turning into a documentarian documenting our own lives. And I think that's actually a very good thing. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors today before we get into the main topic. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. So this, uh, this email comes in from Karim, and it says, they've pretty much lost all their public support in that that city, speaking of teachers in Chicago, waiting for the day when they strike and find out when no one needs them and they won't be getting to come back. And there's a link to uh, uh article here about uh, a teacher strike, uh, a vote to strike in, uh, in Chicago. I'll give you a little bit of the article. Nearly 96% of Chicago's public school teachers who cast a vote last week agreed to authorize a strike, setting the stage for a walkout as soon as October 11th. The union said 95.6% of Chicago teacher union members Voted last week, opted to approve a first strike since 2012. Last week's voting process was criticized by some because teachers could see how one uh, or another voted. So, so much for a secret ballot, right? The union's House of Delegates meets Wednesday and could set a strike date for as soon as October 11th. The union has given ten, to give 10 days notice before a walkout. At the very least, the strike is expected to spur ongoing negotiations with a new contract. Quote, a strike, a strike can be averted and CPS will work tirelessly to make sure children's education progress is not interrupted. And quote, said a direct district spokesman, Emily Bittner. Quote, a strike is a very serious step that affects the lives of thousands of parents and children. And we hope that before taking the final steps for the strike, the CTU's leadership works hard at the bargaining table to reach a fair deal. End quote. According to the union's rules and election committee, there was a 90.6% turnout of its members, leading to an overwhelming vote for a strike, with 95.6% of its voters backing the strike. That easily surpassed 75% of the threshold necessary to okay a strike. Um, I'm going to not read the whole article because it's rather long yet, but one of the big sticking points is the, the district has come back and agreed to most of what the teachers are asking for, but said if you want to keep your pensions from being cut – you guys need to start putting 7% of your pay into your own pensions. And what the, with the teachers union, these are the people teaching your children. These are the people teaching your children math. 
So that results in a 7% cut in pay. No, no, it's your money in your pension. It's your money in your pension. Now, I guess they could say, well, the, the, the school district has been paying it up till now. Okay, fine, but that's not how... See, this is this is where all of these people and all of these like these government employee employed positions across the country are all destroying their own lives, like they're hastening what's going to happen anyway. These people, even though they're teaching your children mathematics, are mathematically challenged. They cannot comprehend the fact that government doesn't just have more money, and they don't want budget cuts. They want the they want the government to go out and find more revenue. That means tax you for it. In one of the most heavily taxed cities in, a, in, in, the, in the world, really, but certainly in America. I mean, the, the taxes that you pay on any kind of decent property in Chicago are obscene. Uh, many of these teachers can't afford to live in the school districts they teach in. But just tax people more. Because that'll fix the problem. And that's the mentality here. And, and this is... This is part of the demise of government schools. There's many other problems, but teachers in of themselves, especially in these union states where they have grown up with union mentality that it's for the workers and you always just get more whenever you can, they have no grasp on reality whatsoever. These are people that would go to a well that just had its pump put in and had never been primed and would refuse to dump a, a, a few buckets of water down the well to prime the well to get water to come out. They would just expect water to come out. These are people that would go to a wood stove and demand heat without putting wood in it. They have no concept of the finite nature of economics. They're the government. They just have money. These are the same people, that not just in government sectors and not just teachers, people that work for companies, and they don't give a damn about the company at all. They look at the company as a source of money. And it's, from a pay standpoint, I get that to a degree, but what, what, what employees tend to not understand is if your company doesn't make money, your ass is going to end up out of a job. But people, people honestly do believe that companies just have money. I ran several companies from you know 50-person headcount down to 5-person headcounts, and I had, because of the small size of those companies, had time to talk with employees. And I'm pretty good at sitting down and talking with someone on the level to where they kind of feel like they forget that you're talking to the guy that owns the company. And they let things come out. And you realize that they do. They think that companies just have money. And the younger the person, the more that that's true. But what I'm seeing now in these generations coming along you know, behind my own, the longer in life it's taking them to snap to the point that it doesn't. And if they grow up in this kind of big government uh, union world, they never let go. They always believe. I, I remember when I was in Florida um, for a vacation a few years ago, there were some teachers on a boat with us, and they were discussing you know, how terrible it was that they were only getting a 2% raise in their pension payments. They were all retired. They looked like they had all been retired for many years. And they were actually getting a raise in their existing pension, but they were bitching it was only 2%. And I'm like, you guys understand that sooner or later this slush fund's going to run out? They're like, oh, no, it's the guy. this is a teacher that's retired now, says to me, oh, the government can just print more money whenever they want to. They're teaching your kids in government school. These are the people. These are the people. And I think Karim's on to something. There's going to come a time, sooner rather than later, where teachers go on strike and no one gives a shit. And people are going to be like, you know what? 
this kind of solves the problem. This kind of solves the problem. You don't want to teach? We don't want to pay you? Bye. We'll figure something else out. And I'm telling you right now that the only, and this is why, this is why they pushed women into the workplace. Notice I didn't say allowed women into the workplace. Cleared the way for women to go to the workplace. That's, that's fine. But they, literally from the 1960s up till now, women have been pushed into the workplace by basic laws of economics and making it harder to survive, uh, but also through guilt. We, we, we have women that are supposed to be feminists that talk about women that choose to not go to work or to work only part-time, and they talk about them like they're trash. And this was a designed play by the people in power, because once you have both spouses working, you're beholden to the government schools for child care. Because that's one thing. That, it disrupts parents' lives. Why? Because they have to take care of their own kids? No, because they have jobs and their kids are not in school, so now they have to see to the care of their child that they normally don't because they've relied on this. Government has become daycare for your kids, and they get a half-assed education while they're there. That's what it's become. Once we can solve that problem, you, you'd see the modern education system dead in a week. In a week. That's the only thing holding it up right now. That and the, and the remaining people still brainwashed to believe that it's a proper system for kids. And I'll save further thoughts on that here for a question that's coming up in just a bit. By the way, for the whole unpaid, underpaid teacher argument that I know I'll get from covering this, the average salary of a teacher in Chicago is $76,000. $76,000 to work nine months out of the year, get every single holiday, okay? And, and, uh, and teach fourth grade 76 grand. Now I'm gonna tell you what, there's a lot of people busting their ass, working a hell of a lot more than these teachers are, making way less than $76,000. And don't give me the whole heroic teacher environment, uh, argument. It's just, it's nonsense. And I want you to go look at this article, and I want you to look at the people on this page. And no disrespect to anybody here, but I don't look at anybody on this page. And think, gee, there looks like an intellectual genius. That looks like somebody worth $76,000 to teach. I don't see one person that I feel that way about on this page. Um, the one in the pink in the center looking at the microphone looks like she would have trouble doing 2 plus 2 plus 2 unless she was directed how to do it with a guidebook with 76 steps for Common Core math. And we're going to go on strike because we're not being paid enough is second highest paid teachers in the country. And with 76 being the median, that means your new teachers that are making significantly less, averaged against your, your, your teachers that are there with tenure and been there a long time, there are plenty of teachers with more than 10 years in the city of Chicago making over $100,000 a year to teach fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Come on, how much qualifications do you need to teach fourth grade? You basically need to be somebody who got A's in fifth grade. And then have some maturity and some understanding of how to run a classroom. This this argument is dying, and this 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 it, the problem again is with these whole pensions in, in the education system, especially in some of these cities like Detroit, like Chicago, like New York City, like Los Angeles. The money is running out. We can mathematically predict if we don't use new math and we use regular mathematics, when the money's going to run out. And these people that are supposed to be educators cannot comprehend this. 
They can't comprehend this. They think, again, governments just have money. They just have money. And there's always more money, and you can always pay us, and now it doesn't work that way. And you're going to watch them destroy their own futures because right now, for most of these teachers, there's still an opportunity to have a reasonable pension, and they will burn their own house to the ground in spite of it. I'm telling you right now, it's coming, and it's coming fast. So this next question is an interesting one for me, and I've been talking a lot about automation, artificial intelligence, etc. lately, because I believe it's the, the biggest disruption you'll see in your lives in the next 10 years. No matter how it plays out, it will be a massive disruption in the lives of callous Americans and in industry as a whole. And even those that are not directly affected will be indirectly affected by it. And that kind of speaks to the heart of the question. This is Jack. I've been wondering, with all your talk on automation and jobs, are there any jobs that you think are relatively safe moving forward? This is something you could possibly do a whole show on. Thanks for you would do, Andrew. Okay, so here's the thing, Andrew. As I've said recently, I'm trying to be more clear on this. I don't think, for instance, that they'll get rid of all lawyers. You'll just need 80% less lawyers. I don't think they'll get rid of all teachers. I think there'll be something uh, akin to the modern classroom in many places 15 years from now. Just a hell of a lot less teachers. As we move to more of a hybrid model and we start figuring, and the, the private market starts figuring out solutions to this. Because I'm telling you right now, if you gave parents an affordable option for a private education, most parents that are around today that are, let's say, upper middle class, Would, 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 would jump on it. Would jump on it. And if you can do it in a way that starts to eat apart the parasitic system of government and starts to, to make people be able to go to their, their local councils and go, how can you tax my property this much anymore? You, you, you said you need it for schools, but half of the kids aren't in school anymore. And your school still sucks. You got twice the money, half the kids, and you still suck. You, you, I mean... That type of local politics does work. So th that's one of these things that's going to you know, continue to, to erode. Like, how many of these professions do we need? So it also so it comes down to strategic placement and how good are you. So I don't think we're, we're heading for a time when there won't be any paramedics. People will continue to be idiots and continue to hurt themselves. Right? But automation will reduce the number of paramedics that we need. Are you starting to see a picture here? That no matter what you think of, and you might think paramedics, I don't I had a guy that came to the class on Saturday here, uh, either paramedic or EMT, I don't remember which. Uh, it might even be a doctor, I'm not sure. But he told me about a new machine they have that does CPR. The machine does CPR. Just put it on the guy's chest, turn it on, it starts pumping. Never gets tired, never runs out. I mean, all of these, well, somebody has to supervise it. Yeah, but how many people do you need? As you start automating more and more, you need less and less people. If you think about the way a ship's run, we have cruise ships now that are being run with an actual, the crew that actually runs the ship is 10% of what it was 100 years ago. And it's just getting to be more and more. I had a guy write in that's a, a, a naval, uh, I think he's a Navy captain, which would be like a, uh, I guess like a lieutenant colonel in the Army, somewhere like that. And he said that you'd be amazed how little is necessary to run modern warships. So what what is safe? What is safe? Does safe mean there'll still be jobs, or does safe mean there won't be a big hit to the number of jobs? 
I think if you're looking for that, it's going to be very difficult. I think the places that have the most insulation are entrepreneurial, where you're setting yourself up as a source of information or product, and you manage to control that, and you're doing it with a, a, a human level of touch. I think that actually will become very in vogue. When, because people don't like to deal with people until they want to deal with people, is one way to look at it. So I think one of the reasons Amazon's so effective, especially with millennials, as they get older and get jobs and have income, is they don't want to deal with people. They, they've, they've grown up their whole life on the Internet, and if they, if they know what they want, all they care about is when can I get it, how much does it cost? They don't want to have a discussion with anybody. So they don't even want to discuss it with a person at the cash register. They don't want to stand in line. They don't want to do their own checking out because that would be like work. So it's much easier to point, click, and have it come show up. And for even for me, I consider it more convenient. I don't like to deal with people either because most of the people I have to deal with aren't the kind of people I want to deal with. So where can you go and be completely insulated from that? Not even in like the highly customized craftsman businesses and all because here's where the whole thing starts to unravel. You get to a point <clears throat> where even if your particular profession hasn't been directly hit yet, you've so curtailed the number of employed individuals that you begin to have an overall effect on the economy. So there's, there's this diminishing returns point, and it's part of what's holding it back. The industry understands this, and they're trying to figure out how fast do we go, when, and where. Because what I mean by that is if we lay off 20% of the people with jobs in America today in one fell swoop, right? And it doesn't matter if it's a little bit easier to absorb over a year or two than it is over a day or maybe even over five years. But the overall effect is the same. There's just a bigger shock to the system if it's instant, like during a major recession or depression. But if we take away 20% of the people that are employed today and they no longer have jobs, whose job isn't affected by that? Whose economy is not affected by that? Because, again, we talked about this with the teachers. Don't understand. Companies and governments don't just have money. There has to be a customer or a taxpayer for either of those entities to have money. So if you reduce spending by 20%, then everybody's numbers go down by roughly about 20%. Some do a little better than others, but in the end, a rising tide floats all boats. Well, a tide going out lowers all boats. So then you have companies that begin to not able to be, be able to compete, and so they have to start laying off people or going out of business, which adds to the number of people that are unemployed. Those people now can't just go get another job because there's already 20% of the people who went before them looking for a job or haven't given up. And, and then what do they do? Well, their, their spending comes out of the economy, and that lowers the tide even further, the economic tide. Now, you'd think the companies would say, you know what, we're going to stop this shit. Because if we keep automating out the jobs, then we're not going to have anybody to buy our shit. The problem is you can't take away competition in an economy. You can try all the socialism and communism you want. It's still going to be there. So the companies have to continue their own demise through further automating because only the ones that, that, that do it perfectly are going to survive this. You're going to have to be the small, agile company that's very personable and dealing with niche product, or the big company that's completely automated as much as possible. And at some point, then we have to deal with the economics. 
We have to figure out how do we create an environment where people can have money for basic life needs and necessities in a way that's fair and equitable and doesn't stifle people that are go-getters that want to go out and build businesses and still do things. And it can be done. There's no one with the political will to discuss it right now at all. And we're all going to suffer for it in the near future. When I say near future, five years, ten years out. I'm, I'm telling you right now, by t you're going to feel like the people we talk about in the 1800s, in the age of invention, between now and 2020. By the time the next ass clown circus is in, in court, and they're playing the stupid circus music and telling you once again, the most important election of our lifetime, you're going to be bewildered by what's going on. No, there's no one who's safe. Because even if the profession is safe, the economy's not safe in this. And we have to restructure the economy to fix this. It's the only way. And how to do that, I have some ideas, but it's going to become necess uh, necessity being the mother of invention. We're going to have to adapt on the fly. And I believe, I believe that the private sector will be able to adapt faster than the government sector, and it may be a real opportunity for liberty. It really might. Um, we've already proven we can create our own money. If we can create our own money... We can create our own economy. If we can create our own economies, we can create our own way to earn income. And we can start rewarding people who are doing good things, even if they're not doing things that generally get you get paid for. If that makes sense. Hard to get your head around, but get your head around it because it's what we're going to deal with. Let's move on. So this next one comes from uh, Josh. Josh says, I've got a daughter who my wife and I have come to believe has some attention issues. ADD, who knows? But the life of me, I don't want to get her doped up. Our family has a long history of addiction issues, so doping her is a non-starter. Any thoughts on alternatives for attention issues? Thanks, sir. Okay, first of all, I am not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I do not even play one on TV or on podcasts. So everything I'm telling you is instinctual. Um, and just a suggestion, and some of it is from things I've seen and observed in the past. One thing I, I, I want to bring up right out front uh, is something that I heard many years ago, and it's one of those things that went in my ear and never went away, and I've never actually needed it, but it didn't go away. could be for this moment. But I worked with a lady back in like 96 who had a child with so-called ADD, and that's what I call it, so-called ADD. And I'll get into that in a second. And she said that they started having this child drink about a quarter cup of straight, strong black coffee a day. And it worked wonders for them. Because it's a stimulant, much like Ritalin, which is basically methamphetamine, okay? It's meth. You're giving your kids meth when you give them Ritalin, just so you know. Just so you know. Just because no one told you, America, and you're stupid, and you're giving your kids dope, and it is dope, that's what you're doing, okay? But the basic stimulant of caffeine causes more center-focused and calm approach. Now, I don't know if that works. And I don't know how you get, you know, an a eight-year-old to, to drink black coffee. Apparently this kid liked it, 
All right. And I certainly don't think you should go, you know, souping them up on sugar and caffeine, i.e. Coca-Cola, because that's not going to work because that's going to have a counteraction and it's got all kinds of bad problems and GMOs and everything else going on there and pesticides and glyphosate and you name it. It's all part of that deadly mix that we're feeding our children. We're almost as bad for giving them that in mass as we are for giving them freaking Ritalin and whatever else they're giving these kids now. Okay, so then here's my other side to this. I don't believe that ADD is a thing. I don't believe it's real in that it's a problem. It's only a problem for the institutions that we have forced children into. What we're saying when we say somebody has ADD is they won't behave normal in our definition of the word. And we've made normal sitting in a chair for eight hours a day, doing what you're told, and working on shit you don't want to do. Okay, that's not an issue, except that it doesn't fit the paradigm with schools and all. Personally, I think the solution to ADD is lots of activity, is giving people things to do. Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing. My nephew, Nick, fit the textbook definition of ADD perfectly, perfectly. He's very successful right now. He uh, He's working for a company that does, like, Eyewash stations and stuff like that for, uh, you know, other companies, basically their safety and medical stuff. And uh, he's actually out of the industry uh, from a competitor, and he's working for a new startup that he's building the whole company. But he's got ADD, so he can't, do, can't be, see? And I, I would believe that if they had the term when I was a child, I would have been diagnosed both uh, autism spectrum disorder with Asperger's, okay, and ADD. Fortunately, we didn't have those labels back then, and I just had to cope, and the system had to cope with me, and you couldn't put dope in me. But you say a kid has ADD. How does a person with ADD stand on a two-foot-by-two-foot two platform in a tree for six straight hours, barely moving, waiting to shoot a deer, if they actually have ADD that's the problem? They don't, because they don't have ADD. What they have is an inability to focus on stuff they don't give a damn about. So then the challenge for the educator becomes, how do I pick and choose what I make them give a damn about? And how do I get them to give a damn about it? How do I unlock learning for this individual? You want to solve ADD in America? Put recess back in school. Have these kids go outside and play for 15 minutes three times a day. And there's been studies where it's been done, and it's worked fabulously. Because then they can focus again. They get a chance to reset. Now I'm going to get some hate mail for this. Because I'm going to get, my child was this and my, and without these drugs, and I'm going to tell you what, of all the kids on this shit, there's probably 1% of them that have legitimate psychological issues. And it probably does help these kids cope. 1, 2% tops. So, maybe that's your kid. And let me tell you something else. When I talk about stuff like this, and you get all personally offended, and you think I'm talking about you, I'm sorry, folks. That's the height of arrogance. I don't have any idea where your individual kid is that you're listening to me right now. I don't know. I mean, I know some of you by name and all. But in the end, most of the people get upset with me. I've never met you before. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the averages. I'm talking about the majority. And for the majority, this is not a thing. And I think the people that are being helped with it, it's not even ADD. It's some sort of neurosis that's so severe, medication may be helpful. 
And it's all lumped together as this one big thing, ADD or ADHD, right? Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Do you know what you call a six-year-old that's hyperactive? Normal. Normal. Look at children that grow up, you know, without being forced into the school system. They're out, out in the woods or out in the yard all the time. They're constantly going. You know why? They're supposed to. It's when the synapses in your brain are functioning at their highest capability for learning from the time when you're about five till you're about 25. There's never a time in your life again that you can interpret and learn as quickly, that you can form pathways as quickly as you can in that golden 20-year period. And what do we do? We stifle it by making a one-size-fits-all approach. Let's say that you had a work environment, okay, and you hated it. You hated everything about it. It required you to do things that were counter to who and what you are. What are you going to do? You might suffer through it just long enough to find something else. You're going to quit the job. Okay, That's what it's like for these kids in our government schools. But they can't quit. And they're going to be there for 13 years. And every day they're being told, you have to, you have to, you have to. And what the thing is, I don't want to do this. I don't really care. And as they get older, it gets worse. Because as they get older, they start asking questions like, why do I have to learn this? And you go, because you're going to need it. You go home and you ask your mom if she knows how to do it. And she says, no. You go ask your dad if he knows how to do it. He says, no. And you look at mom and dad and you go, you know what? Successful, successful. Do I have to learn this? Yeah. Why? Because you're going to need it. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, mom. You don't know how to do it. Yeah, it's different now. Really? You should use this word. No, no, dad, you don't use it. No, okay. Because I said so. Okay, now it's on. Right Now the rebellious mind of the kid is engaged. Well, I, the hell with this. The hell with this. You won't have a calculator everywhere you go. I'm holding my iPhone, Mom. There's a calculator in here. Maybe you didn't know that. Right? I mean, this is, this is what we've done to our kids. We've put them into this position. And our kids are not damaged. There's nothing... Because here's the thing. Somehow... All the way up until the 1980s, this was a non-issue. There was one in a, a couple hundred kids that were like this really kind of over the top with it. The few that probably can benefit from these drugs today. And they were very, very few. And the rest of us did all would be medicated today if we were kids. Just dealt with the freaking shit. We just dealt with it. And you know what? We learned how to deal with shit. Because I've got my second teenage kid working for me right now. If you're telling me you did something wrong, and I don't mean like, hey, dummy, you screwed that up. Hey, you messed that up. Let me show you how to fix it. They start to crumble on themselves. They look like somebody, like an egg that somebody's crushing under their foot. This young guy working for me now, I had him here on Saturday just to give him some hours and let him meet people at the class. He turned the down guy the wrong way. It popped loose and it popped the guy in the thumb and it hurt him. He was walking to the house. He looked like he would look like he just killed somebody. I'm like, what's wrong? I'm not very useful. This is this is what we're doing to our kids. We're beating them down mentally, where they can't cope with anything not working right or going right. And when they rebel against that, we medicate them. So my solution, ADD, is first consider it a non-problem unless it really, really is a problem. Okay. Number two, 
don't put them on dope. Don't put them on dope. Don't put them on dope. If you don't get 10 doctors and 10 opinions and they all say it's necessary and they all make very compelling cases, don't. That's how many it would take to convince me. And being on my wits end and not knowing what else to do and trying the minimal amount possible. Okay? So no dope. And exercise. Engage them. Find out what they're interested in and get them involved in that. It's amazing. This person has ADD. They can't do anything. What do they love? Oh, they love comic books. Here, give them a comic book. Boom! And they'll read page after page after page without moving. They don't have ADD. They have I don't give a damn disorder. You understand that? I don't care about this. So you either find out how to make them care about it, or you trick them into learning by bolting into something that they do care about. But that would require one-on-one -on -one learning. That would require an entire shift in the paradigm of education. Uh-huh, yeah. Do you think there was a problem with ADD? Do you think there was a problem with ADD when we were all hunter-gatherers? Do you? Do you think that right now the children of the few remaining aboriginal peoples throughout the world have a problem with ADD? You think you ever have a kid and go, look, he, he, he moves around too much. He's always doing something. He, he's always interested in stuff over here instead of stuff over there. He doesn't listen. You know, we got to do something about it. Let's pray to our God or whatever. No, they don't do anything. They say, like, that's, that's who that kid is. And the stuff he does need to learn to be part of the community, he'll learn it in time. We don't need a solution for ADD. We need a solution for the lack of patience we have in society, for people that don't immediately conform to what we have decided is normal when our society is dramatically abnormal for the human brain, dramatically abnormal for what the human species is supposed to be doing. That's my thoughts. Let's take another one. This is a great email. I love getting stuff like this. This comes from uh, John. John says, you really have more of an impact on some people than you might think. I've been listening for about two and a half years. In that time, I gradually transformed from a Republican, go to work and pretend to be happy idiot, to a uh, go to work and make enough money so I can get out of this bullshit anarchist idiot, which leads to walking to freedom. My family and I were planning a vacation to California, so just to chill on the beach this past summer. I suggested to my wife one night that maybe we should relocate somewhere more liberty-focused than Colorado. It's getting bad out here, man. Californians are ruining this awesome state. So sad. To my delight, my wife said, hell yeah, let's do it and make a new start. I'm a lucky man indeed. Instead of going to California for vacation, we went to Idaho and toured the whole state. We found a great area to live and plan to move there in the spring of or early summer of 2017. I really don't think I would have had the inspiration to do this if it wasn't for listening to your podcast. And I'm not trying to kiss your ass here. I've been, I've been a pretty rebellious type of dude my whole life, so kissing ass isn't really my thing. But you planted a lot of seeds that grew in my head. Thank you. And uh, he's actually suggesting the song of the day, which is uh, Rush's Free Will. And that's actually going to be our song of the day. But uh, I just think that's awesome. And, and, and I, again, I, I want to point out your state boundary, right? your state line, is not the freaking Berlin Wall. And people that felt they didn't have enough liberty... Risk being machine gunned to get over the Berlin Wall. You know, I, I don't think of Pennsylvania. It hurts me that Pennsylvania is such a, a lost cause for liberty compared to what it was just, you know, 30 years ago when I was a teenager there. It really, God, it hurts. Because there's so many wonderful things about the place. And what I've seen happen to it over 30 years is just, just sad. And, but compared to New Jersey, oh my God. Well, the Delaware River has bridges that go right across it 
And they'll totally let you put your shit in a U-Haul and go over the river and just live on the other side of the river. You know? That's, that's my message for walking to liberty. Walking to freedom. We have one last real way to use the gift that is the republic that was given to us by our founders. And that's our mobility within the republic. Because each individual will define for themselves what liberty is. And to me, liberty is a lot of things. But you know one thing I don't want to be? I don't want to be cold, so I'm probably not going to go to Idaho. I want to be close to my family, so I have to figure out what works best. Texas works best for me right now. But if, if Texas ever really goes off the reservation, you know, there's other places to go to. I'm just saying. Dorothy and I, every once in a while, talk about Tennessee. We really do. You know, and is it perfect? No, and no place is. But there's really, see, that's the one thing. When you want to actually know what, you know, real American exceptionalism, not the American exceptionalism that the talking heads on the radio talk about, the one thing we have that is so much dramatically different than anywhere else in the world is the dramatic difference of our states, small s states. I mean, if you go to, to China, they have provinces and prefectures and stuff like that, and they have, you know, provinces in Canada and all, but it's nothing like America. It's nothing like America. And we still have that. It's our last way to vote with our feet. And we have far more influence on local governments than we ever will on a national government. And the best way to influence local government is leave. You take your money and your time and your talent with you. You go apply it somewhere else. The problem has always been pointed out exactly what is here. People from California are ruining Colorado. Um, maybe some, but not, not, not as much as you'd probably want to believe. I've been to Colorado enough and man, it's a bastion of liberalism in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, talking to a business owner who is being adversely affected by Obamacare and having to lay people off while he's still defending it, which is what I did last time I was in Colorado. I'm like, do you understand what you're saying? You're telling me you've had to reduce your headcount. Let people go you didn't want to let go because of the impact Obamacare has had on you. And you're still defending it? Yeah, well, I still think people need it. And I go, Holy crap. Holy crap. This guy wasn't from California. He was a native Coloradoan. So the reason I set up Walking to Freedom, which is a forum you can go to, walkingtofreedom.com, is so people can find out what state was already closest to what they were looking for. Instead of people going like, California is screwed up now. Let's go to Colorado and make it like California and bitch about that too. Instead of having people move to dramatically different places and trying to make them the way they used to be, what if we had people moving because they had an intention when they moved to go somewhere that was already the closest they could find to what they were looking for? I don't believe that can be done anywhere near as well in any nation other than this nation. That's one of our pieces of exceptionalism that's still left. Use it. Let's take another one. Okay, so um, this question is from Ashley. And I know Ashley well. He's a good dude. And he says, um, what would you recommend as a first gun for a 12, 14-year-old who's responsible but lacks shooting experience? BB, pellet, airsoft, other. And how would you train them initially? Details. I have a 14-year-old son, 12-year-old daughter who's showing interest in shooting, as does my wife. Both are quick learners but inexperienced with shooting. My son enjoyed shooting 22s at scout camp. Everyone enjoyed a couple shotgun lessons at Alpine Range near Fort Worth. Thanks for that recommendation. 
My daughter did struggle with the size of the shotguns they had, but impressed us all with her tenacity and focus. I know her, and I can tell you that girl has focus and tenacity, man. Uh, man, she was a she was here at one of the last workshops, and she was a quail. Quail terminating and cleaning machine, man. I'd like to get something they can practice with frequently close to home. This leads me toward BB and pellet and airsoft guns. Uh, I like the pellet guns because they may be a viable tool rather than just a learning step, but perhaps that's two different guns. Developing safety awareness and excellent skill is definitely a primary purpose. And although I have nothing against airsoft, I want to focus on long guns first. I don't see airsoft long gun options having an advantage over BB pellet guns. I'm also concerned Airsoft reduces respect for the guns as they're aware of Airsoft wars. Yeah, we're going to fix that attitude in just a second. You should know that my shooting experience is limited. Like my son, I enjoyed growing up shooting with scouts and later friends, but never bought a gun. I'm the guy who always supported your right to have a gun, never felt the need to put one uh, my time and money there. So watch increasing efforts to trample your right to own guns. I increasingly feel that my support for that right must be mean exercising it as time allows. I'm educating myself, including my wife and kids, plan to own guns in the not-too-distant future, and I'll probably send more questions your way to pursue this. Given all this, what gun guns would you recommend for kids' freedom to practice at or near home? What drills would you do with them? Uh, any safety lessons you focus on, either Colonel Cooper's four rules, NRA's three rules of gun safety, etc. I think both of those are things that should be committed to memory. You should have your kids able to recite both the four rules and the three rules. And the overlap's fine. Still learn to do it. Now, let's start out with what I would recommend. In your situation, I would heavily lean toward airsoft, even though you've brought your objections up. Let's start off with your first concern. It makes children have less of a respect for the gun because they're aware of airsoft wars. Okay, well, here's how you handle that. These are airsoft guns. These can actually cause serious injury when used at close ranges. So we have to treat them like real guns, just like BB guns and pellet guns. Now, the BB gun or the pellet gun is likely to cause a more serious injury with an accident. Okay? Um, we just did some stuff here. I had a kid I was teaching to shoot, and I, I'm telling you, you have a lightsaber. The lightsaber drill, kids all know what lightsabers are. It makes sense. You tell them, you have to imagine there's a lightsaber coming out of the end of this gun, and it's a very, very serious thing. And if you put that past somebody, muzzle them, you've cut your friend in half. And that's rude, and we don't do that. And that's exactly how I explain it. Kids laugh. When you make a kid laugh, do you know what that means? They effing heard you. That's what it means. That means they heard what you said. It went inside. A good teacher can get visceral reactions and humorous reactions. You use pain and humor, pain and pleasure, to reinforce learning. And pain doesn't mean beating somebody up or something, but when you make something a little bit difficult, but just difficult enough to challenge, and yet push them through it, they remember. And when you can give them a humorous experience, they remember. And if you can do both, then they really remember. They become resilient. They don't collapse when their boss tells them they did something wrong. Okay? So airsoft, and the reason I would say that is because you want this to be done frequently. And from my discussions with you, I know you don't have a great deal of space. And you're more likely to have a problem with consistently practicing with a pellet gun or a BB gun than you would with an airsoft gun. Okay. Now, actually, your low-powered BB guns, like your lever actions, like your Red Rider and the 105 PAL, or they think they call it the buck now, right? Daisy makes both of those. And I don't, th you know, thinking of your little girl and your boy being a little bit bigger, I don't think either one of them would need to step down up, like like the Red Rider type BB guns. 
Those are pretty low velocity, but see, steel BBs really bounce. You'll shoot your eye out. Yeah, that's part of the deal. And since you don't have like a big woodlot to turn them loose in where they can safely do this, unless you can set up like a range in your garage, you're more likely to have problems with the neighbors calling the police and things like that. And if they come out, they'll be more likely to be able to shut you down, at least with threats and intimidation, over a BB gun than an airsoft gun. Now, airsoft guns do have long gun opportunities for you. Um, I have a KWA uh, AR clone, and it's fantastic. It is a $300 plus dollar gun, but it is a great training tool. It is a, uh, a PTR, professional training rifle. And yes, it fires full auto and stuff, but when you fire it in semi, it's like firing a regular semi-auto AR. There's your long gun. Um, I actually take a different view, though, with teaching children. Now that this wonderful thing called Airsoft exists, I'd actually prefer to start teaching with a handgun. Why? It requires greater discipline. It requires greater discipline. It's much easier to muzzle somebody with a handgun, to point a handgun where it doesn't belong, to shoot yourself in the finger, to shoot your teacher in the foot, to, to move the muzzle without the, the instructor having the chance to grab it and say, that's not what we do. But with Airsoft, we wear eye protection if we're dealing with kids or whatever. We, we learn that it's, you know, the consequences of a malfunction are pretty minor. Right, especially if we go with lighter shooting guns or we drop our charge rates down so we're not shooting as hard, what have you. And what that means is basically I can teach the kid to drive the stick shift before the automatic. Because I can work with them the handgun. And if you can handle a handgun safely, when I put a rifle in your hand, you're going to handle it safely. Right? So I think that you got that going for I think that the big thing overall is you'd be able to do this more consistently. Now, if you can get a place that's easy to go to, to shoot BB guns and pellet guns, then I would actually look at step at the, the age your kids are stepping up a bit. Um, like a Crossman 760 or a Daisy 880 or something like that. With your kids, I would not go to like a brake barrel because they're very heavy. All of the brake barrel guns are really heavy. They're really high-powered uh, ones. Um, but like the 760 is a light little plastic stock gun, but it's, it's a fine little gun. Teach you to shoot with iron sights, not scopes. You don't need a scope on a freaking BB gun. You just don't. Um, and like I said, yeah, the 880 and the 760. The Daisy's the 880, the Crossman's the 760 would be kind of the places I would look there. You know, and have them shoot reactive targets, tin can stuff like that. Definitely, it would, if you go to either one of those, you're probably a lot better off going to pellets because they're not steel, so they don't bounce. BBs bounce. Yeah, you can dump a bunch of them in there, and it's a lot less of a pain in the butt to load them one at a time and what have you. I'd stay away from CO2 and high rates of fire with your BB guns until you get some training done. I would suggest highly that all of you consider taking more time to go to Alpine and take various bits of instruction on different different weaponry and find teachers that you can go and learn from. And, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, your kids are plenty old enough to be shooting 22s, 20-gauge shotguns, things like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, your girl, she might have a bit of an issue right now with uh, shotguns, but I'm just thinking of her and her size, and I'm going, you know what? A youth model 20-gauge 870 pump probably wouldn't be a hard thing for her to shoot. My son was shooting that very gun 
when he was 12 years old, and I know he's a boy and she's a girl, but you know what? He's a small, he was, he, he's a big guy now. He was a small 12-year-old. He was about her size. And once I got him over being afraid of it, he was damn good with it. So, I mean, that's, you know, those, like the, the 870 Youth Model Express, that's not an expensive gun. So maybe do some more of the skeet shooting or trap shooting and get her a gun like that or find out, can you rent that gun? You know, do they have that there? They just they not think of that. Um, but for day-to-day, I think for kids, airsoft is the way to go. And there are, you know, if you look at some of the better spring-actuated airsoft sniper rifles, and some of them have adjustable stocks so that lets you reduce the length of pull, those are great for backyard target shooting. Yeah, you don't have to go to a, a full-on, you know, expensive PTR for this. So, my my first suggestion is airsoft. As far as drills, I, I think the big thing with kids is we don't need to be talking about drills like you know how to deal with somebody breaking in the house or something at first. We just need to be doing things that are fun and engaging their mind with things that are fun. And people like to shoot things that fall over or break, reactive targets. So, uh, again, just beer cans. Are great, you know, because unlike bottles that shatter and leave a mess, when you're done putting holes in a can, you just throw it away or recycle it, right? Um, I've done a pretty cool little reactive target that I have set up. It's basically um, uh, quad box covers and magnets, and they just stand up on a little two by four, and you shoot them, and they fall over. Everybody that shot those enjoyed shooting those. Um, just get them shooting. So work on the on the safety aspect. And once you've gotten them out and, and done it once or twice where you're holding the gun, you're handing it to them and all, you know, put them in charge. Say, I want you to show me the proper way to do everything up to firing, but you're not actually going to load the gun. See, and this is how you get over the whole lack of respect. Okay? You want to go to the point where you load the gun and shoot? Well, then you have to get this right. Okay, now you can load the gun and shoot. You want to get to the point where I let you go out and shoot without me watching you? You do this for several weeks without making a single mistake. See, what you're doing is training. And training means to instill behavior to the point where that the person being trained cannot perform differently. True training. You can train a tomato uh, vine, right? Right. See, we get, we get confusion here between training and discipline. Discipline is when you do something wrong, you're corrected. That's part of training. You can't discipline a tomato vine. You, you can't yell at it. You can't punish it. But if you properly train it, it'll grow in the structure that you want it to. You can train a tree. You can train a freaking slime mold. Right? But you, 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 you can't discipline it. So you instill discipline, but you, you pattern training. And training is simply a matter of a person repeating an action so many times that every time they go to do it, they just inherently do it that way. Think about it this way. No one has to tell you to reach out with your right hand to shake hands, even if you're left-handed, because you know most people are right-handed and most people shake hands that way. So when you meet someone and it's clear that they want to shake hands, your right hand comes up. You almost can't make yourself do it wrong. Why? It's been instilled in you. This is how you train anybody with firearms, not just kids. I wish we still had the days where you could do some basic safety training with them and say you'll probably shoot some songbirds or shit you're not supposed to do. And if I find out about it, I'm going to take your gun. But here, go forth and, and have fun. And don't shoot each other. I really will bust your ass. Right? I wish, but you don't live in that world anymore, so you have to work around it. At least you don't live in it where I know where you live. So, anyway.
Let's go ahead and take another one. This is actually a pretty simple one. It's from Tandy. Tandy says, what are your tips for grill maintenance details? You mentioned several times your affinity for Weber kettle charcoal grills. What are your tips and tricks for keeping them clean, maintained, especially when cooking things that might have salty marinades or other factors contributing to corrosion? Uh, the real truth is I don't even worry about it. I'll actually tell you that people that use their grills often generally have grills that are in better shape than people that don't use their grills often. It's kind of like the airplane thing. The airplane is made to fly. An airplane that sits on the ground over time has a lot of problems that you wouldn't think it'd have. Uh, it just, it has to fly. It has to go do something or it starts to, it starts to break down. It starts to rust. It starts to, to break, you know? Um, so that's a big part is using your grill often. I'd like to tell you that I am, uh, really meticulous with my care of my Weber grill as it sits outside in the rain right now uncovered. Your number one thing you can do. To maintain your grill, especially like a charcoal grill, like the Weber Kettle long term, is to get a good grill cover for it. And whenever you're not using it, cover it. Okay? I don't do that. I don't do that. It's a $150 grill. I've had it for three years. It's still perfect. You know? Here's a, here's a big thing, though. If any spot on it, starts to look like it's, 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 it's even beginning to think about rusting. And I use this on anything metal that, that has to be in, you know, endure. Uh, and there's a bunch of different people who make it, but I use a product called VHT Rust Converter. And, and what you do is you spray this on any spot where you got rust, and it doesn't just eat the rust off. It turns the rust into primer, and then you put a little paint over it. Um, and that, that, that's a big thing to look at with these, these many charcoal grills, especially the Weber kettle grills. The entire surface is enameled. And if you get a nick or a ding or a scratch in it, that's where it can get down to metal and start to rust. Um, as far as, here's the big thing, right? So a lot of people get really, I don't know, hairy over the grill surface. I just fire the grill up and don't worry about cleaning it until I cook again. And I just take a wire brush and knock all the crap off of it. That's it. You know, and I hit it with a little oil, uh, you know, when it's done, because that, that keeps it from rusting. And usually the food that you've cooked has enough oils and natural greases that you start to form a patina. Now, I will tell you this. It's gotten to where it's hard to find good wire grill brushes anymore. And I found out why, and it's a weird thing, but apparently some of the really cheap Chinese ones, people will clean their grill with it, and one of the little metal pieces of the bristle will stick to the grill and end up in the food, and then they eat it, and they end up in the emergency room with like a metal piece in their throat. So a lot of the stores have just stopped carrying them and try to avoid being sued or what have you. And you you, you, you go and you find these nylon ones now. Last time I went to Pix, because they're they used to be cheap as hell. You could buy you know, for a couple bucks and things that I need and use and wear out that I can buy for a couple bucks. I buy, you know... A half a dozen at a time, throw them in a box and use one until it's worn out and, you know, get up to his one, one is done, three is for me, like that. Well, the last time I was at uh, Walmart, I couldn't find a single grill brush that was metal. And I was pissed for about 10 seconds. So I went back to the tool se section and I got a welding brush for like knocking slag off welds. And I'm checking out and I had picked up some other things for the grill and the lady behind the counter knew exactly what I'd done. She goes, these are the best grill brushes. And she told me, this. she said she saw it on 2020 about they were getting rid of the regular grill brushes because of this problem. So instead of fixing the problem and making a better quality product, let's just switch to nylon. So 
Use your grill frequently. Keep it dry. Cover it. Um, clean your grate when you're done cooking. Because it's hot, it'll it'll it'll, it'll come clean for you. So as soon, so don't ever leave it dirty, you know. But when I, when I say dirty, it's not really right. Don't leave it caked up with a bunch of crud. Knock all the crud off, and don't sweat it. I people, I, I see people like, oh my god, look at the grill. It's not shiny silver anymore. It's got all kinds of stuff on it. You're gonna cook on that? Is that safe? Okay, well it's sitting over top of 500 degree flame. I, I, I think it is, right? And, you know, when you have a brand new grill top and it's all chrome, <laughs> that's when everything sticks to it. When you get that nice patina on it, that's when it stops sticking to it. It steals good patina. And then the other thing is, so that's the part of the grill that will tend to kind of wear out on you faster than anything else. Well, they're not expensive. Just replace it. Because you can buy just the, you know, there's all types of top surfaces for 22-inch grills. That's the re reason I love the kettle. It's the best built. Whatever kettle is the best built charcoal grill on the market, as far as I'm concerned, without going over, you know, $500. And it's $150. Bucks. Um, but 22 inches, there's a lot of clones and knockoffs. So there's plenty of cook surfaces. Upgraded to cast iron. If you keep cast iron seasoned and lubed and cleaned, it'll outlast. The grill will rust away, and the cast iron will still be there. But they're, they're built pretty well. I mean, again, I'd love to tell you that I do everything you should do, and I'm looking at mine right now, and I don't have anything wrong with it as far as I'm concerned. Now, again, there's people that look at the, the grill top and go, you're going to cook with that? And I go, yeah, don't eat it if you don't want it. Oh, no, no, I'll eat it. Yeah. Real quick, you know, that's how quick that turns around. But, you know, cover, stay dry, use it frequently. You know, use it frequently. That's, that's one of the biggest things, because the enemy to metal is moisture, And even covered in all, you can build up moisture. But when when you when you throw hot charcoal in there, same thing with your gas grills, right? It's going to it's going to dry it out, dry as a bone. So that's like a big thing. Um, I guess the other thing is make sure you're not doing things with your grill that it's not intended to do, um, and you're lubricating moving parts. Now you're asking about the kettle grill, which has two little rollers. It's lightweight, so it's not an issue. But I've seen a lot of reviews on different gas grills where people say, you know, the wheel rusted off, and it, when I was trying to move it, 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 it the wheel broke or whatever. Well, lubricate the damn wheels. Anything that's exposed metal, you need to keep some WD-40 or some silicone grease or something like that on it. Uh, or people, you know, I, I picked it up by the the... the You know, the, the, the tabletop on the end of it and it broke. Well, that's not a handle. That's not what that's for. You know? So th that's the other thing is make sure you're not doing things with a grill. Like just because it has a, a wing that sticks out for you to put a, 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 you know, a cutting board on doesn't mean that that's a handle. And I've seen a lot of stuff like that. And, and clean your grill. So depending on what kind of grill you have, like I have an infrared grill and it has these reflectors with these little holes in it. And I've seen a lot of reviews around those, and people say, well, the holes clog up. Well, clean it. You know, and clean that you have to clean every time so it has the reflectors and it has a grill top on top of the reflectors. So when I'm done using that, I pull the grill while it's still hot, a pair of pliers, right? So you don't burn yourself like a fool. And, and first, first I knock all the stuff off the grill tops. Then I grab one grill top, push it over to the other, take the wire brush and clean the reflector out. Put the grill top bag over, put the other grill top, clean the other reflector. Not like I'm trying to clean it for an army inspection. Just knock all the crud off of it and then close the grill down. And if you're, you know, 
really concerned, you get a nice cover for your grill and you cover your grill or a tarp or whatever. And I wish I could say I do that, but I'm lazy, so I don't. But again, the, uh, the product for converting rust, and there's a lot of different ones, but the one I use is called VHT Rust Converter. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can see it on Amazon. And Rust-Oleum makes a product that's pretty good. Um, it costs more and it doesn't work any better though. That's why I use the VHT. It's like six bucks, something like that. No, it's $14. Yeah, it's like $14. And, uh, it's, it's the best one that I found anyway. Oh, let's take another one. So this next one is actually really simple and I found a great video that I'm going to kind of rely on for, uh, the person asked the question named Travis, but I'll give you the basics of this because I think people don't realize how easy this is to do. Says, uh, chestnuts, how can I go about growing them? I just picked up 10 pounds of chestnuts at my part-time cash job and would like to grow as many trees as possible. Uh, is there a good resource? Reply with that would suffice. Thank you. Zone 6A6B. Um, 6A6B should be fine for chestnuts. No problem at all. Great climate for chestnuts. Especially if you have a somewhat acidic soil. They, they tend to like that better than alkaline soils. Okay, so it's really, really simple. What you want to do is you want to get your chestnuts and put them in some bags. And you want to put them in there with some, something moist like peat moss or a little bit of compost or potting soil or something like that. You want to put them in the refrigerator. And, and you're going to want to keep them in there for at least 60 days. 90 is probably better. Keep an eye on them. Some of them might start to sprout little bitty sproutlets, even in the cold. But generally what you're going to do is you're doing what's called stratification. So you got to think about a tree with a nut trying to make more trees. It's going to drop millions of nuts and hope one or two become a new tree. And if that little tree, if that nut hits the ground and it, it doesn't get eaten by a squirrel or a deer or a hungry person and it starts to grow when it drops in the fall, it's never going to survive the winter because it's to be young and tender and trying to grow when the frost hits and kills it dead. Right? If it starts growing in the early spring, it can get some size to it. It can put some woody tissue on, and it can just go dormant like a big tree does in the fall. And it can do that for several seasons and eventually get big enough to make chestnuts. So... The tree has built, over evolved an innate intelligence. It doesn't know with consciousness, but it knows through the evolutionary process. I can't, because any, any of the nuts that would sprout died. So the tree evolved to where the nut has basically a code in it that says when you've been cold long enough and it gets warm, now you can grow. So you're emulating that. The next thing I would say is start them probably in pots. Um, because that way they're not going to get eaten out of the ground and they're not going to be grazed off when they're really, really young and tender. Grow them probably for a season to a, you know, to a whip size, which, you know, if you have a good climate and you take good care of them, you're probably talking about a tree that's two to four foot tall. It'll be really just one big whip coming up out of it. That's why they call it a whip. But it'll, it'll be, it'll surprise you how much you'll get of growth in your first year. And then that fall, when they go dormant, Plant them into the ground. Here's an important piece of information for those of you planting chestnuts. Chestnuts have a flat side. They have a top of a little, uh, like a little hat-looking thing to them. Not like a hat, but like a bald spot almost, and a point on the bottom. That point is where the root comes out. That point is also where the thing, the, the, the initial stem that becomes a tree comes out. They both come out of the same point, and one goes up and one goes down. It's very tempting when you're looking at a chestnut to look at it as a big seed, dig a hole, put that point down. Nope. 
There's a reason the chestnut has evolved to be flat. So now the chestnut falls on the ground, and it's not one of the chestnuts that gets eaten, and it lands on that flat spot. It lands, so now it's, it's laying horizontal. And that point is in contact with the earth, but it's, 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 so you think about it, put your hand in front of your face right now with your palm down and your hand across your chest like you're going to karate chop yourself in the chest. And imagine your middle finger is that point and it's sitting there flat to the ground. Well, coming out of the bottom of your middle finger is the root going down and out of the, the top of the, the tree going up. That's how you want to plant a tree to get a nice, healthy tree with a proper structure. So you want to put it in there on flat. So when the, when the, when the nut lands on the ground, it naturally lands that way. And how does this happen in nature? Well, the trees start shedding all their leaves as they shed all their nuts. They're going dormant. They're going to go to sleep. Some of them get buried, and they're in contact with the soil. And all those leaves around them hold moisture in. They go through the moist, cold winter and stratify. And then the ones that survive in the spring, they come up like a, you know, a risen phoenix, and a new tree is born. So that's what you're trying to emulate. Um, I don't know how much land you have, but I'll tell you what, uh, 10 pounds is a lot of chestnuts, a lot of trees. But what I would suggest is start as many as you can in pots. Uh, get a good source of pots. You don't need a very big pot, like one gallon size, you know, cheap nursery pots. They're about a dollar a piece. And what I would do is once you get them grown out for that year and that spring, you know, or that, that whatever, you know, plant as many as you can that, that fall when they're deciduous, winter over everything else. And that spring, put them up for sale and sell them for $10 a tree and you'll probably get it. You know, grown from seed, locally harvested, whatever. Just Craigslist alone, you can probably sell. Let's say you sell a hundred of them, because there's God, you got ten pounds. There's probably there's probably a good twenty five chestnuts to a pound at least. So you got let's say two hundred and fifty. Plant a hundred and fifty, sell a hundred for ten dollars a piece. Put a thousand bucks in your pocket. I'm just saying, it's, it's worth you know a year and a half worth of you know looking after them to be able to do that. And pre-sell them. Once, once you have them, once you have your count down, you know they've made it through that initial stage and they're up a foot tall. You can start offering to sell them for five bucks instead of keeping them through the winter. Put some money in your pocket while you're putting some trees into the ground. I think that would be a great idea. Um, next question comes from Rick in British Columbia. He says, I was wondering how you weigh the feed for your ducks. I watched PE PETV presentation. You emphasize the importance of limiting the amount of feed for your ducks. I believe it was one quarter per bird per day. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've been feeding my ducks based on how much feed is left over the next morning. Sometimes I overfeed because I get home late. I'm filling out their feeder in low light, no electricity in their coop yet. Do you weigh your feed before you give it to your ducks? I use 50-pound cap, galvanized hanging feeders, and I was thinking it would be a good idea to use a hanging scale between the feeder and rope so I can actually gauge the weight of the feed with no added labor. My worry is the scale would wear out quickly from constant load. What are your thoughts? I think it's too much work. I think it's too much work. Here's what we do, and I said it during the presentation. I've said it every time I've done a presentation on ducks. Um, we know how much feed is um, fits in a five-gallon bucket, right? I mean, that's that's the basics of this. And um, two buckets uh, with some headroom, because it's a little easier for Dorothy to carry because she's the one that usually feeds them, uh, is about 40 pounds. And with about 150 birds, we should be feeding about 37 and a half pounds. 40 is close enough. We fill up two buckets. We take it to their coop. We fill up their feeders. 
That's it. When we go the next day and we're going to give them more feed, if it looks like they still have some left over, we feed them a little less. If it looks like they completely wiped it out by morning and they're needing to use more, we up their feed and we keep upping it until there's a little bit of feed left the next morning at least. And that's it. And I didn't say that it was important to keep it down to a quarter pound. You can certainly feed. I mean, most commercial operations that are feeding pure feed and they're not getting any forage, they're going to feed their ducks about four-tenths of a pound. So not twice as much, but, you know, what? Close to twice as much. Because 0.5 would be a full twice as much. I'm trying to feed them. The reason I'm trying to, to maintain that is so that we're not spending too much money feeding them. And we're making them do some work for their living. And remember, they're also getting sprouts every day with that as well, which is more like a treat, but I, I, I do think it, it does a lot for the quality of the product as well. And you, you watch your animals. And if, you know, it's normal for ducks when they, when you feed them and they're coming home to their holding area for night, for them to like start gorging, right? But it's also normal for them to kind of gorge for a while and stop and they don't wipe the food out right away. If they're wiping the food completely out, like let's say in 20 minutes, and then wandering around looking for more food, they're underfed. No matter what I say about my ratio and my ration, right? Because they're, they're, you know, a duck in the north, like British Columbia, might need more feed in the winter than they do down here just to stay warm. Just because their, their basal metabolic rate, their BMR, is going to be higher in the cold because they're trying to maintain their core temperature with it. So you might have to feed them more. So I came to the number based on where, what, where, how low could we go without them stripping it bare and, and still have them happy and productive and not upset. And when a duck's hungry, you'll know. Uh, I had a caretaker one time that didn't do a good job feeding my ducks. And we got home from a vacation, and when we pulled in the driveway, they were out in the far field, and they started screaming at me as soon as they saw me. And I knew right away what it was. It had never happened before, but I still knew what it was because they had never behaved that way. And it's not like they're so attached to you, like, oh, he's back. You know, it's not like a dog. Oh, the life giver's return. No, no, no. It was, they haven't been fed. And I went over. I was pretty upset with the person that I had here. And uh, they they had no food. And and I fed them, and they went real heavy. So if your ducks are unhappy, you're going to know it. They'll let you know. That's one thing I like about them. Anyway, hope that helps. Let's take another one. Okay, I thought about not reading this, but I... Uh, I decided that since this is real-world feedback, that I need to read this. I know it's going to upset some people, especially women, but I didn't write it. This is being related by someone who knows someone on the force who's been on the force for a long time in regard to female officers. Here we go. If you yell at me for this, I'm only reading it. I don't even have much commentary on it. it says, Jack, this is John in Central Texas. I just want to comment on your intro I listened to from episode uh, from 22 September. And that was the one about the lady cop that shot a guy in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's now facing manslaughter charges, by the way. Kind of like I said she would. Kind of like I said she would. I'm just saying. My brother has been a cop in three different departments for almost 30 years. He has told me that female officers are, don't yell at me, guys, very dangerous because they react very violently to situations male officers don't. They are quicker to use tasers, pepper spray, and deadly force than most male officers. 
He also said they get away with it because, A, nobody wants to be seen as sexist by reprimanding them. B, the female officers in leadership will rally around them. And C, when they do go to a grand jury or trial, they sit on stand and shrivel up and look as small as possible, cry and talk about how scared they were. The jury always lets them off. Sometimes the departments wind up firing them, but the female officers do not go to jail for things male officers go to jail for. He was basically telling me this to warn me to be very careful around female cops. I think your assessment of what happened in Tulsa is probably correct. I do not agree that she will do any time. I don't believe she will be found guilty of anything if she's not, if she is not no build. Okay. First of all, um, I actually think this lady is going to be convicted. Now, how much time she's going to do, I don't know. Um, she, she's being charged with first-degree manslaughter. In the state of Oklahoma, that has a minimum sentence of four years, and the sentence can be anywhere between four years to life, depending on the circumstances. It cannot be three years. It is a state crime, though, and just because you're sentenced to four years doesn't mean you'll serve it. She could serve as little as six months. And they would, you know, come up with some reason to release her earlier or whatever, uh, depending on behavior and, and what have you. Uh, with an officer in prison, it may even be the safety of the individual sending her house arrest, God knows what. But here's the thing. Just because she's being charged with first-degree manslaughter does not mean that she has to be convicted of first-degree manslaughter to be convicted. Um, it is most likely the case that the trial will be done in such a way that the jury will be able to convict her either of first-degree manslaughter or second-degree manslaughter. Um, secondary manslaughter, I believe, can have a sentence as little as six months in Oklahoma. I think that's pretty likely to be what happened here because I think, I think what's going to happen is it's going to be very clear what actually happened here. No matter what the guy did or didn't do before the camera started rolling, no matter what she says she thinks he was doing, The, again, the other officer deployed a taser, and she immediately fired. And I would bet by now, and it seems like, this. to be fair, the city of Tulsa seems to be taking this very seriously. Uh, the DA came out with charges before the, 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 uh, the detective was even um, done with the investigation. Basically, the DA was con uh, conversing with the lead detective on the investigation, and said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and file charges. I believe we have enough. That I'm going to take this in front of a grand jury. And um, you finish and get me everything, but I think we're already there. Again, that's that's a very strong message. And that's 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 a perfect example of you know not protecting your own, which is good. And uh, it's going to be, and here's the thing, you have to get through two juries. So first she's going to go in front of a grand jury, which is how these things work. And it's it's a good system overall. Uh, I'm not saying it's always run properly, but it's the, the grand jury system is a good system because the first thing you have to do is con convince a jury that it's that, 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 that there was enough evidence of a potential crime to have an actual trial. It's like a pretrial, and then they go to trial, and then that's when you get into deep. Everything comes out, what have you. And, and I I don't I think in this current climate I don't see her getting off. If she does, it's a travesty. Now, as for be very careful around female cops, maybe. I don't know. I've dealt with a few female officers. I have, I, I have seen more kind of machismo, bravado, rude behavior from male officers than female officers. Of course, I'm never a dick, right? I don't cause problems. 
uh, I told my story about the pellet gun with the female officer and how I handled that. And, and you know, I, I was very nice. And I, I, I de-escalated the conflict very quickly. I think my statement at this point is, let's say that, that my car broke down on the road and I'm waiting for help. And a cop shows up and should be saying, can I help you? And instead they say, get down on the ground. I believe that I am morally and ethically right to say, what the f*** are you talking about? You have no right to ask me to do this. But out of self-preservation, I'm going to comply. And any problems, any issues that I have, I'm going to take that up after the fact, when we're not in the middle of the field, when we're not in a situation where they feel, for whatever reason, they feel right or wrong, that there's a safety issue, that there's a danger. Now, I do think cops have gotten to a point where they start bossing people around, ordering people around, pointing guns at people way too fast. And I think it's why a lot of these things are going wrong. Now, do I think this man's assessment is plausible? I would say for some, yes. Because it's, it's, I think it's true of everybody. So let's imagine this. Let's imagine that I'm in a situation now as a private citizen. I've got my gun on me. I catch somebody on my property. I go say, hey, what the hell are you doing on my property? Get off my property. They refuse to back down. Let's say, well, let's not say, I am about 210 pounds and almost six foot tall. Okay? Let's say the guy that's doing that is 140 pounds. Okay? Now, I'm still worried you might have a knife, you might have a gun, what have you, but I feel pretty in control of the situation. I'm less nervous. I'm still nervous because I I've, I've got a guy on my property who won't leave. Right? It's a similar type of conflict. But let's replace this now. Now let's say the guy that's on my property is one of these guys with no neck. He's about six foot six. He looks like he changed his tires barehanded. Am I more nervous? Now see, it has nothing to do with me being male or female. It has to do with the person, you know, has a hundred pounds of body weight on me. They're half foot taller than me. I'm looking at this guy going, if we get into a physical fight, I'm going to lose. And if he wants to kill me, he could probably kill me. Okay, if you're a if you're a woman that weighs a buck oh five to a buck fifteen to a buck twenty, okay, which a lot of female cops I see, that's about where they're at. Then I'm that guy to you, and you can talk all the machismo and all the I learned how to fight too, and like no, you didn't, no, no. You take away your badge, you take away your pepper spray, you take away your taser, you take away your gun, and you try your bullshit hand to hand combat they taught you, and you know in your heart. That a guy my size is going to grab you by the throat if I mean to do you harm, and I'm going to plow you into a tree or a car hood, and I can beat you to death with my bare hands. And you know that. Just like I know, the guy that has me by 100 pounds can probably do that to me. Okay, So it's more likely in any individual confrontation that a woman that's 120 pounds is going to feel that way compared to, let's say, a guy that's about 200 pounds. It's a good shape, works out, etc., which a lot of cops are. I know about the donut eaters and the fat guys, but listen, let me tell you. Those are usually the long-term guys that are riding around as sergeants and stuff like that. Most of these young cops I see are in good shape, most of them, all right? And I'm just saying, it's, it's reasonable. It's completely reasonable. It's completely plausible. I know I'm going to get hate mail, but I'm just telling you the truth. It's the same reason, again, you got a guy that's like 320, looks like he should be in WWE wrestling, and I'm, going to come, I'm confronted with this guy? You don't think I'm more nervous than a guy my own size or smaller than me? 
Okay, so if that's true of me, why would it be anything less true for a 115-pound woman looking at a 210-pound guy that's six foot tall and is behaving aggressively? Where that excuse ends is when there's four officers and one guy. And that's what we had in this instance. And, and that's why I think it's going to be very difficult. Because this is what any good prosecutor is going to say. Officer, whatever, that fired the taser. Why did you fire your taser? Well, because I felt that he was being non-compliant. I was trying to gain compliance. Okay. Why didn't you draw your gun, Officer Thompson? I, I didn't feel the need to escalate to, uh, to, to lethal force at the time based on the situation. No further questions. Done. Okay. Officer Williams, let's say the other guy's name was Williams, right? Uh, did you did you deploy your taser? No. Did you shoot him? No. Why not? I didn't feel it was necessary. He had a taser, one taser sufficient. I didn't feel there was a need to fire my gun. Thank you. No further questions. Officer Smith, did you shoot him? No. Did you tase him? No. Why? My partner had a taser on him. Uh, I felt no need to deploy lethal force. Okay. No further questions. You're going to pull her up on there? And you go, why did you shoot him? I was in fear for my life. Okay, uh, let's talk about your training. First of all, none of these other officers seemed to felt their life was in danger. The other two officers neither tased nor shot. One officer was going to tase to gain, gain compliance. You knew he had a taser, didn't you? You know they're issued. Why didn't you go to yours? So we get whatever we get through that. And then we're going to get to this point and this especially at the grand jury level, to, to push it to a trial. So when you fired your gun, what happened? He fell down. I'd like to review the tape. This is when you fired. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4. There he falls down. Almost four seconds. In your training officer, when you fire your weapon, because you believe your life or the life of another is immediately in danger, what are you trained to do? When that Threat doesn't go down. Answer truthfully, you are under oath. And you either have to take the fifth, which isn't good, right? Or you have to say, I'm trained to fire multiple times. Why did you only fire once? I'm sorry. This one's cut and dry. It's a negligent discharge, which would put it under the category of manslaughter. In other words, your actions, while not intentional, resulted in death due to carelessness that should not have happened under the circumstances. I mean, if you have a vehicle that you know is in poor repair, you know your brakes need to be fixed, and you don't get them fixed, and you drive your car anyway, and you get in a wreck, you're going to get charged with man vehicular manslaughter. Because even though you didn't mean to hurt anybody... You knew better than to do that, and your carelessness resulted in somebody's death. That's how the law works. I'm sorry. Let's take another one. All right, final one for the day is a quick, easy one, a lighthearted one from Wade. Wade says, Jack, I'd like to how you fix squirrel on the grill again. I remember you talking about it, but don't recall the details. Thanks, Wade. Okay, what you do is you skin your squirrel and you quarter it. If you don't know what that means, I'm not really sure how to help you, except you cut it into four pieces. You got your front quarter, your, your front left and right quarter, and your rear left and right quarter. And uh, you, you don't really have to do that. You, it works better that way to lay flatter for you. You can really do it in thirds, so you can uh, cut the cut the critter uh, in half, right where the backbone uh, actually meets the uh, the the rib cage. And you don't really have to split that into two pieces, but it's just kind of more I don't know symmetrical if you do. 
but then you want to remove the ribs, and you definitely want to split that in half. That way your legs and your front legs will lay flat. And you're going to brush all your meat with a little bit of oil. Uh, I prefer peanut oil for this because you're going to use a higher temperature, and it's too high of a temperature for something like olive oil. You could use something like coconut oil, but then you're going to have to heat it first because it's going to be solid otherwise. So peanut oil is just expedient. You're not using that much of it, so I, I really don't worry about doing that. Uh, for those that are worried about you know oils that are not uh, the perfect oils, like, again, you know nut oils and uh, true nut oils because peanut's not a real nut. It's a legume, uh, and, and olive oils and things like that are much better for you. For this, I don't need that much squirrel. It works just fine. Brush it with peanut oil. And then I use Keith Snow's steak seasoning for this. But you could use salt, pepper, garlic would be fine. Maybe a little sprinkle of uh, some uh, cumin or uh, some chili powder to go with that. Whatever seasoning you want to do. And this is the key. You get your grill screaming hot. So it's going to sear. You throw those four little pieces of squirrel or eight pieces, depending on how many squirrels you got on there. And you sear them on one side just for a couple minutes. Just until they start to brown. You flip them when they brown on, but when they're browned on both sides, you wrap them up in foil. It's it needs to be loose but tight. Okay, so how do I mean by that? I mean you should be able to. It shouldn't be like wrapped up tight in the foil, but the the foil should be airtight. Should be completely sealed. So you know, do the double fold over or what have you. Make a little pocket. Move it to the the other side of the grill, and on the so if you're using a gas grill, don't even have heat on that side, right? And then turn your temperature way down, close the lid, let it go for half an hour. It's fantastic. Everybody I've made it for is like, I can't believe that squirrel. It's juicy, it's tender, and this is even with old squirrels. And I got to tell you, it's one of those things that I just came up with one day. Uh, I kind of kick myself or not. This is not my old, you know, when I was a kid, squirrel hunting all the time. I made a lot of squirrel stew and stuff like that. Um, I never did this with squirrel back then. It was... Uh, One day in Arkansas, I'm out there and Charlie, uh, not Charlie, because Charlie wasn't here yet. Uh, Max is barking his brains out. There's a squirrel up in a tree. I'm like, I can eat a squirrel today. So I go inside, grab the Ruger, and pop. Squirrel comes out of the tree and uh, skinned it. And just like on a, you know, just kind of like on a, a whim, just tried that. It just kind of came to me. Like, do it on the grill, but it's going to be tough. Okay, we'll sear it, and then we'll slow cook it in, in a very moist environment. What I've never been able to understand, I still don't get it myself why, it's so moist. Squirrel is not a moist meat, it's very lean. And you're only just, you know, like I said, a little brush, like a little silicone brush is what I recommend for, for your brushing your oils. Um, and uh, just beautifully juicy. And I guess it's because of the quick sear, and then you're, you're more or less steaming it in its own juices in that foil pouch. And I gotta say, I've tried some other stuff. Um, I've done rabbit that way. It works good. You need to cook it a little longer before it goes into the, the foil pocket. Because the squirrel's so small, the meat gets hot really, really fast. And there's like a carryover heat effect. So with rabbit, you've got to maybe flip it a little bit more because you don't want to over brown it. You don't want to burn the outside. Uh, but it's a thicker piece of meat, so it takes a little longer. But I've tried some other things that didn't work. I thought, well, I've got these, uh, these ducks here. And every once in a while, because of an injury or something, I have to end up processing one. And these uh, laying ducks just are not a really good meat duck. They're not. So I'm like, well, it worked great on squirrel. So I tried it with uh, some duck breast cutlets, and it it it, it, it they were tough. It, it it just didn't work. It just didn't work at all. Um, I've never done I've never actually done chicken that way. And you know what? I, I think I'm going to make that a project for myself sometime this week. Uh, 
Maybe to do chicken wings that way. See, I never want to do chicken wings that way. I want them all crispy and all, but I mean, I, I don't know. Squirrel, rabbit, chicken, you know, all kind of similar. But for squirrel, it's perfect. And uh, it'll make you in a squirrel hunter if you're not one. I'm telling you right now, it'll, it'll do it. Uh, so hopefully you guys uh, give that one a try. Um, I recently had somebody on Facebook when I said something about eating squirrels say there's no meat on a squirrel. I'm like, that's not how it works. How do you think they mobilize themselves through trees? It's uh It's a pretty good meal. I mean, one squirrel with fixings, right? Um, you know, uh, is, is an okay meal. I'd prefer to, uh, but as part of a meal. So usually, you know, I don't get out and do a lot of squirrel hunting anymore, but, you know, we have them around here. And with the dog's tree one, I shoot it. And so I'll have a squirrel. And if, like, somebody's over and we're doing, you know, sausages or quail or something like that, you know, I'll, we'll each have, if there's four people, each have one piece. And if there's two people, you each have two pieces. And going with something else, pretty fantastic. Pretty fantastic. And maybe, you know what I should try? Maybe I should try doing quail that way. Next time, I'm going to process some quail probably this, this evening or tomorrow, uh, some uh, some surplus males, maybe splitting the breasts in half and doing them. I'll try that and let you know. Anyway, if you like this show, if you feel you get uh, you know 18.3 cents an episode out of it, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. That's how you can support my show, by becoming a premium member of the Survival Podcast. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more and sign up there. And guys, all of you that, that are members, will become members, have been members, let me just say again how much I really appreciate you guys. Um, you guys have built this show. You guys have made... The eight-year run of the Survival Podcast, the success that it has been by supporting the show and sharing it with others, and I thank you very much for it. And if you guys always want to have the Survival Podcast around, the best way to make sure that happens is become a member of the Support Brigade. It's what it, it's what powers me to be able to do this show every day as a full-time basis. And you know, I don't say this much, but I want you guys to realize this does take a lot of effort. It's not like back when I started it in my car and the show was thirty to forty minutes long and there was no production value to it all and all. it takes a, a good amount of time to put this show together every day a lot of research and a lot of effort and and msb is a way you can kind of you know show your support for all that work because I, i think a lot of people even think like you know you have your screener for your email or whatever i still do this all myself guys it this is a one-man show other than dorothy dorothy handles the members that join by mail entering those and she books the guests i do everything else And uh, MSB is, is kind of my paycheck for doing that. So just think about that if you've been on the fence about becoming a member. Uh, the other way you can support us, and it's completely pain-free and cost-free to you, is to do your shopping on Amazon through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com, and uh, you can click a link there. You go right to Amazon. When you get to Amazon, just search and buy and click and do what all you ever do, and uh, we get credit for your business on Amazon. And, and that's completely painless, and I really appreciate you guys that have been doing that as well. That's another great way to support our show. And every day I review an item for um, for Amazon.com for you guys. I call it the Amazon item of the day. You'll find that at T-Spaz as well. Today's is the Bradley Smoker. I mentioned this on Friday and said I would probably make it the item of the day uh, Monday. The Bradley Smoker looks like almost like a little mini refrigerator is what it reminds me, like a college dorm refrigerator. Uh, it's got an electrical heat element in it, and it's got a piece that goes on the side. And that side has like a magazine, like for a gun. And you load it up with these little wooden pucks, little compressed wooden sawdust pucks. And it advances them through automation, by the way, onto this little heating element. And that makes those smoke. And it's also got a second heating element in the back that you can control with a with a, a knob. And that determines how warm it gets in there. I love this thing for smoking. I talked about smoking turkey in it uh, last week. But I'll tell you, smoke turkey for Thanksgiving. That'll blow your guests away. And I'll tell you exactly how to do it in the review. But... 
It's bigger than people think. I just did six pork shoulders in mine for this upcoming event. Six pork shoulders. Um, to do that, I used three of the four racks because when the racks were, you know, all in the way they're supposed to go in, there was not enough room between them for a big bulky pork shoulder. So I put, you know, some on the bottom of their rack and some on the top of their rack and spread them out and I get three racks and I did six pork shoulders in one shot. A lot of times with it, if I, what I'll be doing is let's say Dorothy says, I want brisket. So I'll go get a whole brisket. A whole brisket is a lot for two people, even for Texans, right? That You have to cut a brisket in half to get it to fit in this thing because the brisket's so long. So you cut a brisket in half, it takes up two shelves. Well, I'll throw two or three racks of ribs in there and a ring of sausage, and I'll do all that, and then I vacuum seal everything uh, that I, we don't eat right away. So a half a brisket, a ring of sausage, and you know uh, some racks of ribs. And then when we want to eat those, we just take them out. Now, here's the secret. I'm telling you, shh, it's a secret. It really is. The reason I can do that and I can feed you that food and you think it tastes like it was just made that day, on some levels it was. I only smoke in my Bradley smoker, and most smokers, I only take my food up to about 160 degrees. I know 190, 210 degrees, depending on what you're cooking. I know, and hold on, hold on, we're going to get there. Once food gets to 160 degrees, it hits the stall. And this is where it begins to shed moisture so fast it creates evaporative cooling And it's hard to get it to go up much more in temperature, especially in a low and slow 200-degree environment, 220-degree environment like that. Okay, So you do the Texas cheat, which is you wrap it in foil, and you put it back in, or you bring it inside, put it in the oven. The oven is a precision device, and you set it on 225, it stays there, so you use the oven. So what I do with the stuff that I'm not going to eat right away, I smoke it to 160, I let it cool, I wrap it in foil, I put it in a big old vacuum seal bag. I vacuum seal it and I label it. I stick it in the freezer. And when the day we're going, you know, day or before we're going to eat it, we take it out. And we let it defrost. And that next day, I put it in the oven for you know four to six hours, depending on whatever it is to finish it, whatever it is. And I actually am finishing the cook, you know, months later maybe. And because of that, it comes out fantastic. Now, the sausage is different. Well, the time the sausage is smoked, it's done. But uh, everything else, that that's how we do that with our roasts and stuff. And you know what? I want you to try something for me. Go get a really big old thick, like something you'd think of as a pot roast. Pretend it's a brisket and smoke it and see what happens. You can, you can thank me later for that. If you can think of what beef ribs are like, it's like that, but it's like that with heaven baked into it. I'm just saying. Yeah, I like to cook, guys. Anyway, tspaz.com, do your shopping there. You'll help support the show. Uh, last but not least, I want to tell you about our closing song. I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. Uh, the title alone should, uh, should set the mood for you. It's called Free Will. Uh, take a listen to the uh, lyrics. Um, I guess from playing Rush last week, I'm kind of on a, a rock kick. I, I play a lot of music for you guys. It's more like singer-songwriter stuff and country music stuff and all. But, you know, back in my day when I was a kid, long hair and all, uh, I was pretty big into to really good rock and roll. And Rush is a band that I just loved. And for those of you that com commented on the fact that I mentioned Red Barchet, um, and, and I don't know how many teenage kids that grew up in the seventies and eighties had that on a tape that you, you threw in your tape deck and then you drove your car faster than you should have. You had your driving music. That had to be one of them. And I was going to play that today. Then I got the email about free will and I'm like, yeah, I love that song too. And if I remember right, um, subdivisions, free will and red Barchet 
and one other song, I can't think of what it is right now, were all on a single album. I don't think they originally were, but there was a like an album that had some re-releases, and I think I had that album that had all those songs on it. Of course, that album was a cassette tape. Some of you guys don't know what that is. You can look it up on Google. Everybody else, hope you enjoy this blast from the past. Here's Rush with Free Will. Remember to exercise yours. And remember, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.